Well, tonight we're going to turn our attention to the next sola in looking at the solas of the Reformation. This is called sola fide, sola fide, or faith alone. Our first one that we spent two weeks on was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola fide is really what the the historians and the reformers called the material principle of the Reformation. In other words, this was the first domino after which all the other Reformed doctrines began to come into place. In order to understand this doctrine appropriately, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a little bit of a Bible trivia question. Now, I know that this is not a uh, canonized answer, nor can I defend it biblically, but if I were to ask you, before I give you my answer, what is the most important question in the Bible? That'd be a great discussion around a dinner table with your family or a great discussion at a care group. What's the most important question ever posed, written, inscripturated in the Bible? My opinion of that, my view of that, is the question asked in Job chapter 9, verse 2. You remember what happens in Job chapter 1 and 2. He is given a um, uh, full, well, actually the, the enemy of, of our souls, the devil, is given full reign to afflict him except to save his life, not to take his life. He's afflicted with loss of his family, loss of his property, loss of his wealth, loss of not only health, but the security of being able to look at a day with any comfort. Friends come and they be going back and forth with this debate about did God cause this, did you cause this? Basically the question was what did you do that made God do this to you? That was the foundation of their, their question. Job finally speaks. He talks back in Job 9. He answered in verse 1, In truth, I know this is so. Then he says this. How can a man be in the right with God or before God? That's a great question. How can a person be right with God? Isn't that the question that the gospel answers? Isn't that the question that the New Testament addresses? How can a man or woman, a boy or a girl, how can someone be right or in a right relationship with God? I think of one of my historical heroes, Francis Turretin. He lived 1623 to 1687. And he talked about the pastoral relevance of the answer to that question, because a man is made right before God, as we'll see in a moment, by grace through faith alone. Good. When we look at sola fide and the answer to Job's question, I love what Turretin says. This is dense and this is rich. This is puritanical, but listen to him. He says, when we rise to the heavenly tribunal and place before our eyes that supreme judge by whose brightness the stars are darkened, at whose strength the mountains melt, by whose anger the earth is shaken, whose justice not even the angels are equal to bear, who does not make the guilty innocent, 
whose vengeance once kindled penetrates even to the lowest depths of hell. Then in an instant, the vain confidence of men perishes and falls and conscience is compelled to confess that it has nothing upon which it can rely before God. So it cries out with David, Lord, if you mark iniquities, who can stand? When the mind is thoroughly terrified with the consciousness of sin and a sense of God's wrath, what is that thing on account of which he may be acquitted before God and reckoned a righteous person? Is it a righteousness existing in us, developing holiness in us, or the righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ alone given or imputed to us? I think Churton's right. All of us will one day stand before God. Every man, every woman, every person will stand before God and give an account. But it's not just an account of goods, uh, goods done and evils committed. It's not just an account of our life. It's an account of what we did with the opportunity to give our lives and faith to Jesus Christ. That's the central feature and issue, which is why we evangelize, which is why we share, which is why we love our Lord Jesus, because it's only on the basis of his righteousness given to us that God accepts us as being worthy on his account to be in his presence, because we bring no worthiness to God. This was the debate in the central argument of the Reformation, William Cunningham is one of uh, the, Reforma- the best Reformation historians who lived a century ago, and he said this, the Reformation po- from popery in the 16th century was the greatest event or series of events that has occurred since the close of the canon of Scripture. I agree with him. Because the gospel had been lost in Catholic tradition, in Catholic managed, uh, magisterium, which was the, the, uh, the group of men and canons and councils outside of the church that stood judgment over Scripture. We looked at that in Sola Scriptura. And it was the rescuing of the gospel from that works-based salvation. Catholicism taught that Scripture is authoritative. Now listen to this carefully. It still teaches scripture is authoritative. Catholicism taught and teaches that salvation comes through faith. Catholicism taught and teaches that we're saved by grace. Catholicism teaches that Jesus is Lord and Catholicism teaches and has taught that life should be aimed at the glory of God. Now you hear that and you say, then what was the, the protest from which protestants, Protestants came from? Well, these convictions were accompanied by the word and. This is what Catholicism taught and teaches. Scripture is authoritative and so are the church councils, the Pope, the Apocrypha, the church fathers, and the magisterium. Catholicism teaches that salvation comes through faith and through works and effort of our own. 
Catholicism teaches that we are saved by grace and by the merit of our own generated by doing good works, which can be transferred to actual other people who are in purgatory. Catholicism believes that Jesus is Lord and Mary is his co-redemptrix, the co-savior. And that the Pope is infallible, just as is God. Catholicism also teaches that life should be aimed at the glory of God and living well enough to get friends and relatives out of purgatory and staying in good relationship with the church or you're in a lot of trouble. To counter that, those ideas that, yes, these are biblical truths and things that were added, the Protestants pushed back and began this, this um, uh, kind of mantra, this, this uh, exercise of doctrinal fidelity called the solas. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, which we'll look at in a moment. Faith alone Absence of any of our works, sola gratia, grace alone, saved because of God's gracious inclination and not our own effort, solus Christus, Christ alone, Jesus alone as our Lord, Savior, and King, no church, counselor, or pope rivals him. And soli Deo Gloria, all is to be done to the glory of God and God alone. So where did this all start? Well, when you, when you understand the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, it all anchored. It didn't begin with, but it anchored on Martin Luther. I know we've rehearsed this story many times, and I know we've talked about this many times, but it's really critical to this study. He was one of the rare giants of human history, unquestionably the most influential European figure of the second millennium. His thinking, his action, his courage, his worldview changed the church and changed Western culture and society. Some have called him the German Hercules. He was studying to be a lawyer at the University of Erkfurt, Erfurt, and he was traveling and caught unexpectedly, remember, in a thunderstorm. Now, if you've ever been caught out exposed in a thunderstorm. How many of you actually remember maybe as a kid being a, it's terrifying. I remember one time being on a bike out in, in a very exposed uh, area of Tennessee and a thunderstorm came and the lightning and the thunder happened at the same time and I just was so panicked, I dove into a running water ditch. That was genius. Well, this apparently was something that Luther uh, experienced. Caught in a thunderstorm, He was convinced as the thunder and the lightning clapped all around him that he was about to die. So he cried out and he prayed out in a loud voice. He prayed to St. Anne and said, save me and I'll become a monk. It's interesting he didn't pray to God. He prayed to St. Anne. His clothes had barely dried when he announced to his father he was no longer gonna be a lawyer, an attorney, 
and entered into a monastery. Now, this choice was very important. He chose the Augustinian order rather than the Franciscan order. The Franciscan order, just for a little bit of history, followed Origen in his hermeneutical scheme of analogies and allegories. You've probably heard of Origen. Multi-layers of interpretation of Scripture. The Bible rarely means what it says. There's always deeper levels. That was the Origen uh, uh, stream of hermeneutical principles, and that was the Franciscan order of monks that followed him. He chose the Augustinians who looked to Augustine as the, or Augustine, depending on if you're in the South or not, as their, uh, their, uh, the one who set the hermeneutical uh, trajectory for what they believed, which was a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to Scripture. It was there he began to understand and learn and be convicted about the Bible's authority. But Luther had a problem. He was incurably guilty. He couldn't get rid of the guilt that bore him down. He knew his sinfulness. He would wear out priests in the confessional. He would confess for hours and hours and hours until that priest got so tired, he would kind of tag team another priest who would listen to Martin's confessions for hours and hours and hours. He would lay exposed on cold stone, naked, so that God would notice that he was serious. He would fast and starve and thirst himself almost to the point of death. Later in his life, Luther said this, I myself have taught for 20 years the doctrine of faith alone by which embracing the merits of Christ, we stand accepted before the tribunal of God. And yet the old and tenacious mire clings to me so that I find myself wanting to come to God, bringing something in my hand. by which he might bestow grace and favor on me. I cannot attain to casting myself on pure and simple grace only, and yet this is highly necessary. He was looking back to that time and says, it's hard to get rid of that time when I tried so hard to please God by my own effort. Now, before we go any further in looking at this doctrine, I just want us to pause, and instead of beating up Catholic doctrine, which would be relatively easy to do biblically, I think we're all natural born Catholics. You say, what do you mean? All of us, if we really search our hearts, understand that when, when we think of God, we, we want to bring something, we want to offer something. When we think of sin, we think, well, God will accept or reject me based on if I have my quiet time or if I sin. We have this internal kind of clock, this mechanism that measures our own works and that fights and longs to try to please God by our own effort. The term sola only, faith, faith only, was the issue that Martin Luther had battle with over and against the Pope and against the Catholic Church. He had issues with his own heart. So, without going into all the history, I want to get to the scriptures in a second. Without getting all the history, he took a trip <clears throat> down to Rome. 
He was at Rome and went to the Scala Santa, which we'll be able to see, the, the holy steps. Those going on our church history tour, we're going to see that next week. The holy steps, which were the steps on which Jesus was tried before Pilate that Constantine's mother actually went and excavated, brought them back to Rome, set them up as a birthday present to her son when he was the emperor. And the Catholic Church taught that if you go up and say a Hail Mary on each one of those steps, you would be saved. Horrifically, when we get there, we've seen it many times, haven't we, Kim? There will be pilgrims who will be going up those stairs with their rosaries saying Hail Marys so that God might be pleased with them. This is nothing new. Martin Luther went down there and he saw the Scala Santa. Saw the men selling rosaries. Saw them being hurried through so they could make more money and just said, this is, this is how we please God. It deeply troubled him what he saw in Rome. And he went back and said, this is not how you come to God. We come on the basis of our works. So he began to study the scriptures and guess where he landed his mind. Book of Romans. Chapter one, verses one and 17 impacted him and did Romans three twenty-eight, which simply says, man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Pretty simple. Man is justified, made right before God by faith because of what he believes that God has done for him and not by works that he adds to that. But even faith itself, Luther would go on to say, is not an innate quality of man, even believing. Even faith itself, the ability to believe is a gift from God. No man, no woman would ever believe unless the Spirit of God opened our eyes and peeled back the scales from our ears that we would hear the truth of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We, we say that all the time. What is the word that referring to? Think about it. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. What is the that? The that is faith. It's given to us by God. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He granted to believers the ability to believe. We're saved by believing what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We're saved because we believe that God has initiated our salvation and accomplished it in the gospel. Not by works, not by what we do, but by faith in what God has done. I remember when we were studying Romans, uh, the end of chapter three and Romans chapter four, I, I, it's been a long time since I can remember a, a, a portion of scripture having such personal impact on me because I recognized my own legalism and Catholicism, which is the resistance of it can't be that easy. It, it can't be just that simple that God saves based on what we believe and not, not on what we do. Shouldn't I do better, try harder, be good, be kind? Shouldn't he see something and he says, okay, you're in. No, he sees his son. Well, Luther began to push back. 
He nailed 95 theses talking about the abuses of the Catholic Church to the Wittenberg door. Get this, 500 years ago this year, October 30th, uh, 1517. And it began a, we can't really call it a theological dialogue. It began a theological war that made a rift between Protestantism and Catholicism, all based on what it takes to be saved and right before God. Luther got it right and he got it from the book of Romans. And that became his most common and thorough and integrating message that he taught the rest of his life, that salvation is by faith because of God's grace. Faith is to be without works to acquire salvation But he also taught, as would we, that faith without works is a dead faith. Remember what James said about the same thing. Now, you've looked at Job. How can a man be in the right before God? What is sola fide? You have to see this. I read it a moment ago, but I want you to see it in your own Bible. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. This is the most significant phrasing of this doctrine. The most concise, I should say, phrasing of this doctrine anywhere in the Bible. It's a memory verse uh, for us this year. Romans chapter three, Paul says, after talking about being justified by grace through faith, uh, actually, if you go back to, let's read verse 21 and get up to verse 28 because you gotta get the, the momentum. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Pretty simple. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. By faith in Christ, by faith in Christ, by faith in Christ. Whom God displayed publicly as a payment, a propitiation for our sin. In his blood through what? Through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. We're talking about Old Testament and now New Testament time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, here's the question. Where then is the boasting? Who can say I'm good enough? It is excluded by what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. He's basically saying, who can brag and say, I'm better than so-and-so, so I made the cut and they didn't, God will like me. Now verse 28. For we maintain that a man is made right, made righteous, justified by faith apart from works of the law. Very simple. Do we maintain this? Can we maintain this? Listen, can I just talk to you as your friend and not not your shepherd for a moment? Can I talk to you as a fellow struggler on the path to understand theology? If you're trapped in an endless cycle of self-doubt in questioning your salvation because you don't think you're doing enough, praying enough, giving enough, serving enough, evangelizing enough, whatever the word before enough is, 
you're misunderstanding the gift that salvation is. I just, I remember exactly what it felt like when I understood this. It wasn't a Luther moment, but it was a burden lifted for me like, wow. And then I fought back against it and thought, that's too easy. That's, <laughs> I believe that Jesus died for me and I believe that he gave me his righteousness. What's his righteousness like? He's God. What's his righteousness like on the earth? He obeyed every way that could be obeyed. He never sinned. That he gives me that and protects and covers me from the wrath of God and that's my standing before God. If you're like me, you ought to say, that is, that is too good to be true. Let me give you a few quotes to consider from some reformers that you know about. John Calvin. This is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Salvation by by faith, sola fide. This is the main hinge on which salvation turns so that we devote the greater attention and care uh, care for it. For unless you first of all grasp that your relationship to God is and the nature of a judgment concerning you is desperate, you've neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety or holiness toward God. He says, unless you believe it's all by faith in what he has done for us, there's never gonna be a foundation of holy living. Back to Brother Martin. Luther says, it astounds me. It astounds me that anyone can be offended by something as obvious as this. He's talking about how can can the Roman Catholic Church be offended by God doing the work of our salvation? It astounds me, he says. Just tell me this. Is Christ's death and resurrection something that we do or not? It's obviously not our work nor is it the work of the law. Now it is Christ's death and Christ's resurrection alone which saves and frees us from sin. As Paul writes in Romans 4, he died for us and arose for our righteousness. Luther goes on, he says, tell me more. What is the work by which we take hold of Christ's death and resurrection? Resurrection. It cannot be an external act, but only faith in the heart and faith alone. Indeed, all alone. It takes hold of his death and resurrection when it is preached through the gospel. Then why all this ranting and raving, this making of heretics and burning of them when it is clear at its very core, proving that faith alone takes hold of Christ's death and resurrection without any works, and that his death and resurrection are our life and our righteousness. Listen, folks, we are in a battle day in and day out about looking to God and being accepted by what we contribute, both by commission and omission. Maybe I have good works that he'll accept, and I owe me a sin. If you are on that, if you're running that rat race, you will be constantly weighed down with guilt and a lack of assurance. 
We talked about it over and over. Anything that precedes the word enough. I don't enough to be saved. You're right, you don't. Now, the question becomes, well, if it's that easy, if it's all by faith, if it's all by grace, if he covers all my sins, if grace is greater than all my sins, then why do I really need to adjust my life for attitude? Romans chapter six. After five chapters of preaching about salvation by grace through faith, and faith alone, He says in verse six, what shall we say then? Chapter six, verse one rather. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's the caboose and the engine illustration. We don't contribute works in order to be saved. We contribute our effort to be righteous and holy to please the Lord because we are saved. James chapter two. You know this passage very well. James chapter two, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but not works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. He says, but someone will may, may, may well say, hey, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, in Romans 4, Paul talks about the great example of someone who is saved by faith being who? Abraham, right? Abraham was saved by faith a decade and a half before he became a Jew, before he was circumcised. So he says, was Abraham, our father, justified by his works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. You see, faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was matured or completed or perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, he had faith in God, and it was considered, granted, reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by, watch this, Faith alone. I thought it was faith alone. Sola fide. Hold on. In the same way, and then he gives the illustration of Rahab the harlot who showed her faith by her works. He's not, say, he's not countering uh, sola fide. He's saying faith that has no consequential fruit is not real faith. It's the caboose. It's the fruit. It's not the root. We have to get those in the right order. God has granted salvation based on what he has done in his son for those who believe, right? You know what you call that? Really good news. Really good news. When you finally realize I, it's not up to me. 
Luther would speak later of having the burden lifted from trying every day to cajole and manipulate God so he might look with favor on him. In fact, he says, if ever a monk would have been saved by monkery, it would have been me. But he never got rid of his guilt. It's only because of what Christ has done in believing that he died for the sins of those who believe that he died for their sins. So where does that land us today? Well, it lands us personally and pastorally. Personally, uh, how do we preach to ourselves? What do we say to ourselves? What do we understand about salvation? How can we understand our lack of assurance? What do we place our acceptance before God on? Is it what we have done, what we will do, or is it what Christ has done? It's like kind of the, the perfect little doctrinal survey to land us on always looking to the Lord's table, which is an opportunity for us to remember that Jesus died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. To remember we proclaim his death until he comes, and he comes because he's alive. He was resurrected from the dead. This, of all the solas, ought to be comforting. You don't have to strive to please God to be accepted by him. Our striving is because we're his children and we're gonna please our, our Abba, our Father. It's an amazing doctrine. And I wanna confess to you, it is, it's difficult to accept and believe because of our natural bent to say, I want to do something. Maybe take some time and read through the end of Romans chapter three. Your family, your friends, your husband, your wife. And just take a deep breath of gospel oxygen and remember that we are saved because of Christ's merit and Christ's death for us. And let that motivate obedience rather than looking at obedience as a way to earn that kind of favor before God.